So karmically, I made fun of that elevator a little too much. <laughs> those of you who didn't leave here may not know that it broke down after I said that about it being so slow. So I'll take the karma. <laughs> I'm not, I think it's mine anyway, whether I acknowledge it or not. I shouldn't have done that. Now it's broken. Think I'm slow, huh? <laughs> not to anthropomorphize too much. Um, so uh, it may be a few minutes as some poor people who don't realize, or lucky people perhaps don't realize, the freight elevator is working as they come up the stairs and get an incredible amount of exercise. But the freight elevator is working, so that's going to um, take a few minutes, I think, for everybody to be able to gather. So why don't we sit together for those few minutes and then I'll turn things over to Susan and think positive thoughts about that elevator.
So thank you. so we don't have to move the microphone. And I'd like to start by thanking Sharon. It's just such a pleasure to be able to sit with Sharon and to hear her, her speak so simply and so clearly about these really profound and transformative, transformational practices. And... It's perfect, it's a perfect pairing with Sharon's teachings and the idea of mindfulness in a secular way with children, teens, and their families because the wonderful thing about mindfulness with kids is that we really are reaching out well, well beyond people who would often be drawn into meditation in the first place. So I guess that's my first question. How many people here have, this is your first time at a um, place that is, uh, is traditionally or classically Buddhist? Is there anybody here It's their first experience? That's great. So welcome. I'm so happy you're here. And I loved the way Sharon was talking this morning about how this is a skill set we learn and can be applied in a secular context. And that's no, I think it's very important as this movement to bring mindfulness out into schools and clinical settings to children, teens, and their families develops, that we don't shy away from the fact that there are Buddhist roots to this training, that we're not afraid of that because it's, um, it's there. And so pretending it's not there doesn't make sense. It is there, but they, it is a skill set that we're learning that can be applied in a universal way to anyone. And I think we can all be really comfortable with that, and we don't need to be afraid of the fact that it was um, built originally in a Buddhist context. So I really appreciate the way that Sharon talked about that this morning. The other thing I wanted to talk about was how wonderfully appropriate it feels to me that this day today here in New York, which we, we planned about a year ago, I think, happens to coincide with Occupy Wall Street. It's just extraordinary because we look at those, you know, I don't mean to sound like my parents, we look at those kids, but, you know, <laughs> this largely younger group down there who are doing the silent cheer, which we, they learned in elementary school and will do later today uh, with our kids' practices. And they are approaching this um, choice they're making and the statement they're making in quite a dramatically different way. They are being coached on the sidelines. I don't know if you guys saw Bob Thurman's talk to them, talk with them, but it was fantastic, and it was beautifully strong. So they certainly are being held in the, by their elders in the concept of nonviolence. But at the same time, they're very practical about it. You know, the park needs cleaning up. They look around, they say, yeah, it does need cleaning up, so they clean it up. Sharon was talking at lunch today about how she was down there last night and they were talking about if you get arrested, you can do some yoga while you're waiting for somebody to come and get you. I mean, it's just a whole different thing. So I just, 
I just think it is beautifully, you know, ser it's serendipitous that we are here at that time and that, um, you know, we can think about what might the next step be if we integrate these types of practices and these key concepts of attention, balance, and compassion into secular settings, into schools, into hospitals, into Girl Scout troops, Boy Scout troops, summer camps, and make it just really, really simple and accessible for people. So I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, just to give me a little more sense, because I'm still trying to figure out the afternoon, uh, how many of you are from the Upper West Side of Manhattan? The Upper East, east Side of Manhattan. Uh, Midtown Manhattan. Lower West Side. Lower East Side. Brooklyn. That's fantastic. <laughs> I see some silent cheers back there. That's great. Um, did I miss anybody with that? Queens? New Jersey? Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, Long Island? No? Okay. How do you all right, because I'm thinking since so many people raised their hands that they would like to be in multi-age groups, it may make sense when we break up to break, break up by location and area. Does, and Sharon was talking about this at lunch as well. And one of the things that really motivates uh, me to travel and motivated us to do this this week and was that we really are interested in helping facilitate the development of community around the bringing of mindfulness and in children and teens and families into education. Uh, so although I go back to Los Angeles tomorrow, it would really be fantastic if by the end of today we figured out some way for you to stay connected with each other so you can continue to support uh, this work and support each other in this work. So, uh, so let me tell you a little bit about how we, I see the afternoon um, breaking up. It's almost 2 o'clock, and we're going to break a little bit early. About a quarter to 5 was what we were thinking, so that there's some time for you to connect afterwards, and also given the potential elevator um, time it might take for people to get down. And then, yeah, it's fantastic. We've got a child here. Uh, and then we, uh, between now and then, uh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the key concepts, teach you a few games and activities, and hopefully find some time for you to break up into these groups to work on some of these activities yourself. Uh, so first, uh, let me, first let's talk about motivation. I once heard Joseph Goldstein talk quite a while ago, and he talked about a Tibetan proverb, for lack of a better word, that all of mindfulness rests on motivation. And so it's a great place to start when we're thinking about practicing and developing mindfulness with kids, which is just the notion of why. Why is it that every person in this room wants to practice mindfulness with kids or help develop mindfulness with children? And um, there's no, as you'll learn more in this afternoon in this program that, is de that we've developed, the Inner Kids program, there are no right or wrong answers to these questions so long as we speak and we act with respect. So you'll also see that our definitions track each other with respect. Our ground rule is respect ourselves, 
respect other people, respect the world around us, which would include things like our drum. And uh, so the ground rules for the whole afternoon will be the same as for the program. No right or wrong answers. Let's just act with respect. Um, how many people here are clinicians? Clinicians. That's fantastic. How many people are educators? That's fantastic. Okay, so we're going to start with this book, Zoom. How many people are familiar with Zoom? It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And it's a great book to help children and teens understand the idea of beginner's mind or don't know mind and how it relates to their everyday world. And believe it or not, I use this book with four-year-olds and I use it with adults and I, it works every single time. So let's just go through it a little bit, little bit. It's a wordless book. So I don't know if everybody can see this, but for those of you who can, do you have any guess for what that is? You can just popcorn it out. Does it look like anything to you? The sun? That's, that's possible. Hair? A crown. All right. And anybody have any idea what the weather is like? Hot. Any other ideas? All right. So let's see if we're right. We're not, is anybody absolutely sure they know what this is? No. We don't know. All right. What is it now? What is it? Okay, it's a rooster or a cock or something like that. And are we absolutely sure that's what it is? We're pretty sure, huh? Anyone know what the weather's like? Raining. Any other ideas? Could be snowing, raining, but we're pretty sure it's a rooster and we're pretty sure there's some rain or snow happening, right? Now, now are we pretty? Now are we absolutely certain? Yeah. So we have a rooster. It's probably raining or snowing, and it looks like a couple of people are watching. Let's see what happens next. All right. So now, anybody have any doubts that that's a rooster? We can be pretty sure, right? All right. So where are they? And Kansas? Any other idea? <laughs> a farm, maybe, huh? <laughs> it could be a farm. We've got pigs and we've got chickens and a horse. Now, what do we think? Even more proof that it's a farm, right? And that it's a, a rooster in a farm. Whoops, sorry. There we go. All right, so we're pretty sure we know where we are and, what, what, and what's in the picture. What about the weather? Does it still look like it's raining? No. See, we were awful sure it was raining at the beginning, but now we're not so sure. What do you think? It's a toy. It's a toy. It wasn't a real rooster at all. But at the very beginning, we were absolutely sure that was a rooster, right? It's interesting how sometimes we just don't know, but we think we know. And the book goes on and on like that, with one picture after another where we're pretty sure we know what it is, but then we see, oh no, there's a hand there. It's a picture of 
a person playing with a toy. And then, okay, so at least now we're pretty sure it's a magazine cover, but we keep going. We guess where it is. Is it the beach? Is it a cruise ship? Is it the outside? Is it inside? We get pretty sure it's a cruise ship, almost totally convinced it's a cruise ship. And then, lo and behold, it's not a cruise ship. But we, it's a picture of a cruise ship. But what is the picture of the cruise ship on? So we keep looking, and it's on a bus. And with each picture, we get further and further away from that picture of the rooster or the crow or the rain or the snow. And we go all the way through. It's a long book, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing because you're so far away. But it's a great book to pick up and to bring back to your kids and talk to them about how we can be absolutely sure we know something. We can look at all of the information and be absolutely sure we know the answer. And you know what? We still might be wrong. So it helps us explain to kids, and this, like I said, even young ones, how we like to approach, us, approach our mindfulness practice with a mind that's open and curious and you know, open to the idea that maybe something else is going on, maybe we don't have all the answers quite yet. So that's how I would ask everybody here today to approach the afternoon with that sort of a don't know or a beginner's mind, a mind that is curious about what's coming, even though we have a lot of expertise in the room. Uh, but uh, being able to just for the time being take the engaging with the thoughts and put it aside and just experience these activities as if you were a child. Does that make sense? And there'll be plenty of time later, we'll do some Q&A and everything to get back into an analysis of them, but it's nice just to experience them and see what they're like. So now we're here back to motivation. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to break up into twos um, and you're going to play a game we call the five whys. And the five whys is a game that was developed by the head of Toyota Motor Company. And he felt that to really solve the answer to a problem in manufacturing, the way to go was to ask and answer a question back five times. But every time the question is asked, answered, the, the, the return question has to only use the words of the answer. So I'll give you an example to help you understand that. And uh, one of my meditation teachers, Ken McLeod, has taken that game and he started using it with adults to explore emotional material. And I've modified it for kids. And it's a little different depending on the age. But right now I'd like us to do it. And the question I'd like you all to answer is why is it you are interested in developing mindfulness with children? So that's the starting question. And if somebody asked me that, I might say, I'm interested in developing mindfulness with kids because I think it would be useful for my own kids. Whoever's responding or whoever's my partner is going to have to come up with a why question only using the words that I had in my answer. So she, he or she would say, why do you think it would be useful for your kids? I could say, I think it would be useful for my kids because I, hope, I think it will help them calm down when they're upset. Why would it help them calm down when they're upset? Anybody have any questions about how that works? The, the question, the person asking the questions can only use the answer, the previous answer, to reframe the question into a why. 
Okay? And if there's two clauses, then you just choose a clause. So if I said, for example, I think I want to practice mindfulness with kids because I think it would help my kids and it would help my school, I, the question would have to choose, are you going to go toward the kids or the school? Is it why would it help your kids? Why would it help the school? Any questions? Okay, so why don't you break up into twos? I will ring the bell in a few minutes, and then you can change uh, roles, questioner or answer person. Okay, if we can just bring it down a little bit because we have neighbors. So if we can use our indoor voices, that would be great. We have some classroom teachers in the room. This is the silent signal. And another way to use this, it's a great technique, a mindful classroom management technique. Another way to use it is if you hear my voice, raise your hand. What the students very quickly learn is that when one hand is up, the rest hands go up, and we are quiet and listen to the person up front. So thank you. I hate to cut it short because it looked like you guys were really getting some, having some fun, but it's time to switch partners. We have to keep a little quieter because of the neighbors.
That's fantastic. Thank you. You all learned the silent signal very quickly. Okay, so can we have some people who would like to report back on what that experience was like for them? What did you learn about your motivation for practicing or developing mindfulness with children? <laughs> no. Oh, no, please, go ahead. skillful questioning by my part I actually come to be aware of why I'm here, which I wasn't quite sure anymore. So I'm here to give choice making back to children. Mm-hmm. I, I realized I was indoctrinated as to taught what to think rather than how to think. And I think mm-hmm. mindfulness offers choices. I think it's what Sharon said. And the ability to start making my own choice is something I'm working on now and I would like to offer it children. That makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you. Great, thank you. I found it very powerful to have someone who was um, listening so carefully that they could repeat what I had said, which then opened up the next level for me. And it only took five questions mm-hmm. to get to the, excuse me, the, the real fundamental bottom line. That makes a lot of sense to me. There's somebody back there. It is amazing what five questions will do and what just the, pre- the presence of somebody else who's genuinely listening. Powerful stuff. Thank you. I'd like to speak as a listener. Uh, quite frequently when I'm a listener, I'm thinking about the question I'm going to ask. This time I simply listen and the question presented itself. That makes a lot of sense to me. Do we have anybody else? And we'll have one more over here. 
Thank you, Valerie. Just thinking of, of just thinking of this from the point of view of children and of being the person in the other chair, being listened to is part of uh, this acceptance and noticing each other training. Mm -hmm. So this is very nice because you know you're listening to. Thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. How many of you are familiar with Daniel Siegel's work? Oh, a lot of you, that's great. Dan, Dan is um, from Los Angeles and I've worked with him and we're friends. And He is one of the first guys who put together the, uh, the, who began to understand how when we are in a healthy, attuned relationship with another person, uh, in that relationship, by looking at the fRMI imaging, the, the parts of your brain that light up, uh, the pictures of that, it turns out that the same parts of your brain light up in meditation that light up when you are in a nice, healthy, attuned relationship with somebody else. So when you're talking about that, I think that's the family of, uh, that's where you're going with that, is that the children feel connected and that there's that nice, close relationship, and that there is a real relationship between that, the awareness of somebody else, and our own introspective process. So, um, so Dan Siegel's done some great work, and he has a new book out, The Whole Brain Child, which is, is pretty wonderful, and then his first book, The Mindful Brain, is, is also, I think, goes through that uh, inner, outer uh, experience part. Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, E-L, yeah. So, uh, did anybody learn something? Was anything surprising for anybody when they went through that, uh, that experience of what was motivating them to come here today and to practice mindfulness with kids? Okay, great. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what I call the new ABCs, attention, balance, and compassion. And those three qualities, attention, balance, and compassion, are secular adaptations of what Sharon was talking about this morning, that she was talking about as attention, mindfulness, and uh, loving kindness or compassion. So the way we'd like to structure this is by my basically piggybacking on what Sharon did this morning and talking about a secular age-appropriate adaptation for each of those three areas. So let's start with concentration or with attention. There's a couple of different kinds of attention, but for the purposes of this particular piece, we're talking about concentration or paying attention to one thing and nothing else. And Sharon was talking beautifully this morning about how even if we have a primary focus or a primary object of attention, we're, I, think, I believe she said we're gathering our attention around that object, which is very different from yanking your attention over here and putting it there. It's a, it's a different quality. It's a different approach. Uh, it still is a very, very gentle approach. But you can imagine in school how helpful it would be if the kids do begin to develop a skill set or a few life skills that do help them uh, focus their attention on one thing and nothing else. Uh, it can help them in math, it can help them in sports, it can help them reading, it can help them in all sorts of things. But 
There's a couple of things that fall into, that need to happen in order to really easily focus on one thing and nothing else. And one of the things that needs to happen is we need to develop the capacity to attend. So it is a learned skill, attending just like anything else. It's a learned skill, and the more we do it, the better we get at it. So practicing these simple activities of attention a short time many times, which is um, the way I believe it was Minka Rinpoche talks about it that way, and uh, over and over and again, little, little, tiny, brief periods and bringing your attention back to one thing is a way to begin to develop and expand that capacity to attend. But like anything else, if we're going to practice it in connection with a general introspective practice, we have to... Uh, go through the basics first. And so the first thing we need to do is put on our mindful bodies. And our mindful bodies, whether we're four years old or 40 years old, really are no different. It's a matter of how we describe them to the children so that they are described in a way that's concrete and fun and playful because if it's not fun and playful, they're not going to want to do it. So we talk about mindful bodies as strong like a mountain, our breath as like the wind and our minds like the sky. And that's borrowed from a Tibetan description of a meditation posture. But when we talk to the kids about their bodies like the mountain, we talk to them about how if it's windy, does the mountain fall over? No. And if it's raining, does the mountain melt? No. So we stay nice and strong and steady, although still relaxed, even if we have some wind or rain happening in our mind, even if there's a little bit of turmoil in our minds, we still try to keep our bodies strong like a mountain. Our breath is like the wind. So just as Sharon was talking this morning, that just means like the wind, we don't try to change it in any way, we don't try to capture it, but it just comes and goes naturally. So with a breath like the wind, it just comes in and it goes out naturally, and we notice what that feels like. How does it feel as the breath just moves in and out naturally in our mindful body? And then eventually, if we're lucky, for just a second or two, our mind will become wide open like the sky. So we have our bodies like a mountain, our breath like the wind, and our mind like the sky. Now, we talk to kids very early on, too, about what happens in our minds. So... We talked. We use these glitter balls, or we use a nice big, um, a big cylinder, a glass cylinder with water and baking soda, so that we can show them that when our minds and bodies are calm, the mind looks a little bit like the water in this glitter ball. It's clear, and we can see through it. And we'll ask the children, "Can you see to the other side?" And they'll look up, and that yes, they can see to the other side. And then we talk about the stress and strain of daily life and how everybody has stress and strain. And sometimes even things that are very exciting and really things that are great can still be like the glitter in this glitter ball. And when there's glitter in the ball, which comes from a lot of overexcitement for kids or from being upset, can you see clearly now? And the kids know that they can't see clearly now. But if we take the ball and we put our hands on our tummies and we feel our breathing, look what happens. Pretty soon, the glitter settles to the bottom and we can see clearly again. Now, here's a really important part. 
If the glitter is the stress and strain of daily life, did it go away? No. We wish we could say that mindfulness will take away all of our stress or strain or the challenges. It won't. But what it does do is it helps us manage them so that then we can see clearly what's happening inside and outside and make wise choices that are in our own best interest and the best interest of everybody else involved. So that we talk to them about that and we talk to them about how difficult it is to learn, both from, you know, regardless of your age, when your mind is like this. It's very, very hard to learn. But if we can learn to settle it, if we can learn to settle our minds, then it becomes easier for us to learn and easier for us to concentrate on one thing and nothing else. So we developed this as a tool very, very early on to help kids understand that uh, how breath awareness can help them calm their mind and body so that they can better concentrate, so they can calm down when they're upset, and so that they can make it a little bit easier for them to learn. So what I'm trying to do here in the very first part of this talk is set up a few prompts, for lack of a better word, that you can establish with children early on and then be able to drop in and it will be something that they will remember. And then it's, it's a shorthand, for lack of a better word. So we started with slowly, slowly, slowly said the sloth. So once the kids get used to that idea, we can talk to them about moving in slow motion as a way of slowing down. We talk about the glitter ball as a way to explain that we can um, use our mindful breathing or our breathing mindfulness or, or awareness of sound as a way to help calm down when we're upset or help us concentrate so that we can see things more clearly. And we're going to go through this afternoon and, and establish a few more of these mindfulness prompts as well. So let me do a few of those right now. The first one is going to be your magic bubble. And so let's draw it around us. We all have a magic bubble. And everybody's got a magic bubble, and the magic bubble is made of a special material, and that special material can expand for as much space as we have or contract. And right now, our magic bubbles are pretty close to us because we're in a pretty tight classroom here. So everybody has this magic bubble, and within the bubble, we have, we are, it, it has, it's made of a special material, and that special material is something that can't pop. Nobody can come up and pop it. So what has to happen is some, we have to invite people in. So we're first in our magic bubble. Now the next thing we're going to learn to do is we're going to learn to zip ourselves up. So we're going to put one hand in front, we're going to put one hand in back, and we're going to zip ourselves up. Zip! We're going to do a silent cheer up top. Other hand in front, other hand in back. We're going to zip. Silent cheer up top. Now eyes on me. Three deep breaths. Now let's put it together. So you have children around you. You've got, you're in a crowded classroom. We try to do as much non-verbally as possible. The first thing we do is we've established the bubble. We've explained what it is. So people are in their bubble, and we're going to draw it around us. And then we're going to zip ourselves up. And we tend to do things three times. So here's one more time. We have our bubble already, so we can just zip. I'll know you're ready when you have one hand in front, one hand in back. 
Now we're ready to concentrate. Now we're ready to learn. Did you see, do you feel any different after doing that? And do you feel a little bit of difference in the room? It's a great way for kids to help, help kids settle, but the physical sequence that comes before the breath awareness is also a great way to trigger for them that, that the breath awareness is coming. And they do that a few times. We call these things drop-ins. You're able to drop it into your classroom. You're able to drop it into your Girl Scout troop. You're able to drop it into the dinner table. You do these things for a few times, and it's a way of beginning to develop this focused type of attention, this one-pointed type of attention, paying attention to one thing and nothing else. Now we can expand that drop-in a little bit more. So what I'd like you to do is I would like you to imagine that we're sitting in a circle and that there is an object of attention, maybe this drum in the center of the circle. And we're going to do the exact same thing. We will, have developed, we will have established our bubbles, which we then can use throughout the day as a classroom management device, as a way of helping children remember where you are in your bubble, where you are in relationship to other people, where you are in relationship to other things. So we can say, get in your bubble, and then we can zip ourselves up. Now this time, we're going to look at this drum, and then we're going to listen. And when the sound stops, we're going to raise our hand. Same activity, same object. We're trying to develop the capacity to pay attention to one thing, nothing else. The first one, we were focused on the sensation of breathing and really settling down with breathing. This one, we're focused on sound. So we can do that again in a number of different ways, but let's first try it the same way we just did it, which is we're in our bubbles, so we're gonna mark our bubbles. We're all pretty tight in here, so our bubbles are gonna be pretty close. One hand in front, one hand in back, and we zip. Other hand in front, other hand in back, zip. We're gonna put our hands on our knees this time, and you can also do it with kids if they're having trouble sitting still. Tick, tock, like a clock until we find our center, looking and listening. And raise your hand. So this is for the little kids. For the little kids, we're teaching them one-pointed or focused concentration by paying attention to either the sensation of breathing or the sensation of a tone and by preceding it with a fun, playful sequence where they are finding their own bubble in space. For the older kids, we don't need to do the bubble and we don't need to do the zipping up. For the older kids, we just need to have them put on their mindful bodies uh, and again, this is into the older elementary school age. They put on their mindful bodies with their bodies like the mountain and their breath like the wind and their minds like the sky. And then they just feel the sensation of breathing. And for the even older kids, we just talk it through the same way Sharon talked it through this morning. We just develop a mindful posture and we feel the sensation of breathing. So the biggest difference, because I'm here, I'm trying to answer several questions that I've heard coming in today. 
The biggest difference between the different age groups, whether they're very young, whether they're somewhere in the middle, or we get into pre-adolescence and adolescence, is not in what we're actually teaching, and it's never in the theory that we're teaching, but it's much more in, our appro in the approach. So for the little kids, if we keep it playful, if we keep it fun, if we keep it imaginative with these kind of physical activities, that will usually engage their intention. As the kids get older, we have to shift our approach a little bit because we, we have to shift our approach more to one of buy-in. The issue with the, the older kids and the middle schoolers and the teenagers is really how do you get them to buy into this program? How do you get to, them to buy into the notion that this might be a good idea? And the trick to that, I have found, is that you really need to help them very quickly make the connection between how these practices can help them in their real life. How can you use this in the real world that makes sense to you, that's useful to you? The younger kids, you do that too, but the younger kids, if they're having fun, that will often be enough. The older kids, you really can't get even over the threshold until you make some connection with them on the buy-in issue. So that's why we always try to work in uh, a sequence of some sort of creative activity, whether it's play or whether it's listening to music or whether it's uh, physical activity to start out and then we practice, then we go into the practice piece and then we share, there's some sort of a, a check-in afterwards and then apply and then have the kids apply this to their real life. So does that make sense to everybody? So for the very basics on attention, what we do is we teach them very specific activities that are quite concrete that helps them pay attention to one thing and nothing else. And what we're learning is that the more that they practice, the more they pay attention to one thing and nothing else, the easier it becomes for them, and then the more they can use that capacity that they've developed in other areas of their life. When you come to the balance piece, which is quite a bit different than the attention piece, when you come to the balance piece, you take a look at this glitter ball. You see this glitter ball? Can you see through? But the glitter's at the bottom. The balance piece, or the wisdom piece, is learning to recognize the quality of mind. This is learning to recognize how you can concentrate or how you can use mindfulness to build clarity by settling and uh, using, using your concentration to be able to pay attention with clarity and make choices that are in your own best interest and the best interest of others. This is a different, this is a different animal. This is about looking at the contents of your mind, looking what's happening in your mind with some curiosity, with a lot of affection, and see whether you have certain habits of the mind or certain tendencies or certain lenses through which that are already there that you see life experience through. And let me tell you a great example of this. I was in Stockholm this year and I was teaching and I, uh, there was a midwife in the crowd and the midwife was saying that she had once delivered a baby or I think she'd recently d delivered a baby. And she delivered the baby and she took the baby and she gave it to the mother and the mother uh, looked at the baby and said to the midwife, my baby doesn't like me. And the midwife said, what do you mean? It's a brand new baby. I mean, it's like three minutes old. What do you mean your baby doesn't like you? And the, and the, and the mom said, look at how he's looking at me. You can tell he doesn't like me. 
you know, that didn't have much to do with the baby. That had to do with the lens through which this mom was seeing life experience. So through mindfulness practices, through awareness practices, with that gentle, open, curious mindset of being able to look at what's happening in your mind, and over and over again, with gentleness, with a sense of humor, and with some curiosity, you can start to see some habits of the mind or some tendencies of how you see things. Really, really important to note, though, that just because there's a lens there doesn't necessarily mean that lens is bad or good. Do you remember how we were talking early on that there's no right or wrong answers or in mindfulness class? In the same way, lenses aren't necessarily bad. Some lenses might actually be quite skillful. The point is you need to be aware of them. The point is we're trying to build skills for the children to be aware of them. So much like what Sharon was saying this morning, as you become aware of the different habits of your mind, as you become aware of these different lenses, your relationship to it will change. And as your relationship changes, then things start to shift and you start to see differences in action and relationship. Now, I don't say to the teenagers I'm working with or the four-year-olds I'm working with that once you become aware of a lens in your mind, your relationship to it will change and then things will get better. But what we do do is we start to notice habits of the mind in circumstances that are not emotionally charged. And that's also a very important trick when you're learning to develop mindfulness with kids is to learn to practice these activities at times where there's, no, where there's nothing at stake. You're just doing it for the sake of doing it. And then the, an understanding of the practice, an understanding of how it can help in real life just naturally emerges with the practice. And then and only then can we encourage the, the children or teenagers to integrate these into, into their lives when times are tough. I'll give you an example of why that's very important. When I go in to work with kids, whether it's in a school or in privately or an after-school setting, around week four, almost always somebody will come in and say to me, it's not working. And it is almost always the biggest enthusiast, the one who the first week was the most excited. He or she had gone home, they had practiced mindfulness, they had had a wonderful experience and around week four, it just isn't working at all. And, um, and usually the story is something like this. Usually the story is, I was really, really upset last night, I was very upset, and I tried mindfulness, and it didn't help. It just didn't work. And it's around that time that I start telling them that I started pr working out with weights about four weeks ago, which... I could probably I change the story depending on how long I've worked with the kids, but you know, so that they get the idea of the weights. And then I have them take a look at the muscle on my arm, and oh, isn't this great? I've got a muscle. Yeah, well, that's what you get after working with light weights for four weeks. Now and then I ask the question, do you think that I could go out and lift up that car? And of course they say, no, you can't lift up a car. You've only been lifting weights for four weeks. And I say, exactly. That's what you're trying to do with mindfulness. You've been practicing mindful breathing for four weeks. And when you try to really apply it to a time that you're very, very, very upset, it's a little like trying to lift up a car. It's awful hard to do. And so let's just 
practice a little bit more, take a little bit more time, and see what happens. So that's why it's very, very important that we really try these practices with kids first at a time that is not emotionally charged and at a time where there's, the stakes are not high at all, if at all possible. And let them have some time with them, let them have some space with them, let, the, let mindfulness class not be as stressful as the other classes that they're in. And help them develop a familiarity with the practices and understand the practices that feel the best to them, that they resonate with. One of the things that's really important to remember with mindfulness with kids is it's not all done sitting down. That's true with mindfulness with adults too, and Sharon was talking about that beautifully today with the mindful walking and bringing mindfulness into daily life. But still, often we have a sense that mindfulness is about sitting quietly on a cushion. But we have to remember that especially with kids, it's important to find ways to integrate this into activities that are not only sitting still, but also are moving and are dancing and that are loud and that are soft and that are lying down and sitting up so that we find ways for children to develop awareness that makes sense for them. I talk about the importance of aerobic exercise and I deeply, deeply believe that 10 years from now it will be just as common knowledge that some form of formal introspection every day is as good, is good for you as we know that some form of aerobic exercise is. I think we're well on our way to that. It could be less than 10 years. So I think aerobic exercise is actually a pretty good uh, way to talk about mindfulness and developing mindful skills with kids. But I know one thing. I know that running is good for me. I know jogging would be fantastic for me. The likelihood of my ever getting out there and jogging is extremely small. I hate jogging. I can't stand it. It hurts my knees. It hurts my ankles. I don't like it. I don't have the lungs for it. I just can't stand to jog. So I'm not going to be jogging no matter how many articles I read or no matter how many studies I read that jogging is good for me. The likelihood of my doing it is very, very small. The same is true with kids in mindfulness. If we just present them with one possibility, which is sitting still on a cushion, in cross-legged or sitting up on a chair in mountain pose, um, we're not going to be able to reach all of, the, all of the people, all of the kids, all of the teenagers. But if we're skillful about it and we in very early on give them opportunities to practice awareness, sitting, moving, and lying down, then they will find something that works with them. They'll find something that resonates for them. And that's the way in. The way in is to first help them find some sort of an anchor, some sort of an intentional anchor that resonates with them. So do people, anybody want me to explain what I mean by an attentional anchor? An attentional anchor is something that we start with that helps us really ground ourselves in our mind and body. So for example, the feeling of the movement of breath, the sensation of breathing can be an attentional anchor. Listening to a sound of a tone can be an attentional anchor. The sensation of the bottoms of your feet on the floor can be an attentional anchor. And there are a number of different anchors that come from classical training that really are a good place to ground yourself by shifting your attention to 
whatever that sensory experience is. And with that comes some sense of relief. So for instance, the first attentional anchor that worked for me really was sound. A lot of people start with breath and find that useful. For me, it was sound. For some people, it's walking. For some people, it's sitting. For some people, it's breath. For some people, it's, it's, it's sound. So finding that and being able to identify that and help, the, help your students identify that in the first instance is really, really helpful. So I want to take a minute or two now to just stop for questions because I feel as if I've been droning on for a while and see if you guys have any questions before I continue. Um, I think the microphone, is the microphone coming around? Yeah, yeah right there. Uh-huh. And of course, you, Susan was talking about how that's so hard to do for us, and our mind is going yes. and going. And I feel like, you know, the children are, that's all they're hearing mm-hmm. most of the day. Yeah. Read, pay attention, you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not listening to me, sit down, you know. So, how do you make them feel non judgmental that they aren't? I mean, the glitter and uh-huh. I didn't get the green ball as much as the glitter ball, so, but, and I don't know if that relates to this, but you know, maybe you speak to that. Sure. Well, one of the things to remember is this short time, many times concept. So when we're talking about paying attention to one thing and nothing else, the, when I talk to children about it, it usually isn't in that, I usually don't say let's pay attention to one thing and nothing else. I'll say let's listen to the sound of the tone and see if you can keep with it until it fades away. So I tell them a concrete instruction as opposed to the general idea. But one thing that I, um, I am hearing in that question that I think is really, really important, one of the things, is the need to have mindfulness a little bit different to a lot different from what we're asking them to do in the regular course of the school day. And if it is just, okay, I want you to pay attention to your breathing, just like I want you to pay attention to your math, and I want you to pay attention to science, I don't know that we will get so far, as opposed to paying attention with kindness, first to ourselves, then to other people, then to the world around us. So by paying, if we start to just redefine attention as attention with kindness, as attention with gentleness, as attention that's really much more relaxed and at ease, as opposed to that kind of, you know, kind of furled up forehead, you know, as you try to study and bear down paying attention to your homework, but rather just a more curious, open way of really feeling the sensation of breathing and seeing what happens and doing it for a very, very short period of time, and repeating that several times during the course of the day. The other piece that's really important when we're talking to kids about paying attention is that we describe what we mean by paying attention, because there's a lot of different types of attention. Uh, There's paying attention to one thing and nothing else. That's what we were first talking about in concentration. But there's also a more wide open awareness, and in that more wide open awareness, 
it's we really have to have a sense of what's happening all the way around us. And I explain that to children about what it's like to drive. And so what's happening when you're driving? Sure, yeah, if you're going forward, you have to have a sense of what's going on in front of you. But you also need to know what's happening in the back seat. If you've got kids in the back seat or friends in the back seat, you have to know the pedestrians who are going along the side of the road. You have to know that there's a mailbox over there. You have to know about the other cars on the side as well as in front. So that's more of a wide open awareness. It's not paying attention to one thing and nothing else. It's paying attention to everything that's going on around you. So when we ask kids to pay attention, it's really important that we're very descriptive about what it is we're asking them to do. There's also another type of attention known as executive functioning. And executive functioning is something that helps you uh, plan and organize, and not just plan and organize uh, what's in your backpack, but planning and organizing a sentence, for example. It also helps with self-regulation, knowing where your body is in space, that sort of thing. And it also helps with inhibition, being able to stop yourself from doing something, which is another thing that this glitter ball really helps to do. We understand that by taking that moment to breathe or to listen to the sound or to watch the glitter ball, we're able to settle our minds and bodies enough so we can make choices that are in our own best interest and the interest of other people. So when we talk about paying attention, the first thing is that we need to know ourselves what kind of attention we're asking kids to pay. Are we asking them to focus on one thing and nothing else? Are we asking them to have a better sense of where they are in space? Are we asking them to help regulate their body? And then we don't, and then we describe what it is we want them to do please listen to this sound and listen to it until it fades away and then raise your hand. Or walking, really pay attention to the sensations of the bottom of your feet against the floor. Or see if you can get up that as close as you can to the table or to the lamp without touching. All of those things are different types of attention we're training. So it really goes back again over and over again to developing our own practice first. And as we develop our own practice, we'll have a better sense from the inside out what we mean by these practices. And in doing that, we'll be able to better describe them and explain them to the people we're working with, whether they're four years old or 18. Does that help? Okay. Okay, we have a couple more questions back there. Oh, here's one right close to you, so why don't we take that one first? Done sort of your practice by 
uh, time period of a focused attunement with a child? Or have you experimented with other ways to integrate? Or has it always been important to you that you had X amount of time that you did your practice by yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I, it's always been important to me that I have a daily practice and that I make that time. And I've gotten up at crazy hours in the morning to be able to do that. I've tried to do it late at night. I tend not to, I tend to go to sleep. I tend not to have as much success at that. I can set that alarm and get up early. But it's always been, it's also the way I was trained, but it's a daily practice was a prerequisite. But I will say that there was a period in my life when I was able to practice two hours a day. I would practice an hour in the morning, and then during that time, just after work and before dinner, I would put in another 45 minutes or so. Then I got through a period that that just was not manageable for me. So when my daily practice got shorter just by because it was necessary, I got much more adept at being able to really drop these practices during the course of my daily life. The kind of things Sharon's talking about when you're washing dishes really shift your awareness to a physical sensation. And that, I think, actually, if you think of... If I were to say one skill that I think could change the world if we teach all of our kids, it would be how to shift your attention gently gently, not like a magnet, but you know, gently and with curiosity and with acknowledgement of where your mind is first. You notice your mind is, is someplace else. And especially if there's a lot of contents of your mind that are confusing or upsetting, or if it's just stuck, if you're stuck on something, which happens to a lot of kids, you notice that first. You notice it with curiosity. We don't put that under the rug. But after you notice it, to just gently shift the awareness away from what's happening in your mind to a sensory experience. And that's what happens in this glitter ball. The sensory experience can be something like the feeling of your hands on your knees. Sharon did that this morning, and it was beautiful. The bottoms of your feet against the floor, the sensation of breathing, the rain outside. But developing that capacity to notice that you're stuck or to notice that you're upset, or that you're unable to concentrate for whatever reason, note it, and know that you can always come back and think about that later, but right now you're not going to get engaged in it. And then gently, very gently, shifting your awareness to a physical sensation has a way of settling everything. And what I learned, with going back to the question, what I learned more and more was how to once I had my daily practice and would get that in, how to be able to integrate that particular technique, shifting awareness from the content of my mind to a physical sensation all over the day. I do it when I'm teaching. I'm in with a lot of kids often. And, you know, sometimes I manage a lot of kids and sometimes it's challenging. I work with a lot of kids who have learning challenges. And what I do when I notice that the alarms are going off in my head. You know, I don't know how I'm going to manage this. I'm a little overwrought. Is that's all I do? Okay, Susan, you're overwrought. You notice it. Shift your attention to a sensory experience. That one technique is, is great. And you can integrate it throughout your day um, many, many times. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Did somebody... Where's the microphone? Oh, great. Okay. So... Both sides. So let's start with one and then the other. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So um, my first question is, where are you in the ball? 
Amazon. Amazon sells them by the dozen. Uh-huh. How would you go about uh, introducing the idea of, of mindfulness in general? In other words, if I just brought these skills home, what sort of context would I give my seven and a half year old who also does Well, there's a couple of things you can do. One is you can just develop a ritual. So if you just take, if you do you have a family dinner most nights? Yeah, or breakfast, or something, or, or carpool, or something that you do with consistency. If you can just integrate into that, you know, a, a drop-in practices. I mean, that's what really the book has in it, a number of drop-in practices that you can integrate into your day. And if you do it with consistency, then the kids will start to get used to it. What happens then is you, you remember we had the sequence play, practice, share, and apply. So for seven and a half year old, you said, you'd want it to be kind of fun and playful. Uh, and then you do the practice. And then the next piece is how did that feel and how can that help you in your life? Pretty quickly, they'll start to see and understand that, geez, maybe I have trouble going to sleep, so at nighttime I can lie on my back and I can really feel the movement of breath in my belly and see if that'll help me go to sleep. Um, and pretty quickly those things will start to come up. So the ticket is, is to try to find a time you can do it pretty consistently, maybe bedtime, maybe around the dinner table, um, maybe uh, in carpool line. Another great one if you're a busy family, my husband and I did it uh, for years because we were both working, we had two kids, we were just the type of family, we had read every magazine article about how we were supposed to pack the backpacks the night before and make the lunches and we, <laughs> we tried to do it but still in the morning there was always something. So we did develop the ritual that just before leaving we would stop at the door and we would take three breaths together as a family. Those kind of rituals start to make it a habit for the kids uh, to stop and breathe. And that's, um, that's an important skill for kids. It helps with playground conflict. It helps with sibling conflict. Just stop and feel your breathing. Before I take the next question, I want to sing you another song that you can learn. Because it is called, I Stop and Feel My Breathing. It goes like this. I stop and feel my breathing. Peaceful and calm, I'm ready to eat lunch, say goodbye, say hello, learn, have fun, play, whatever it is, you put it in. So if you've got young kids, you can just do something like that. I stop and feel my breathing. Peaceful and calm, I'm ready to, and then fill in the blank of what, what you're doing next. And you start to develop an understanding that if you're feeling a little bit like you're going off the rails, what do you do? You stop and feel your breathing. So you don't have to sing it. If you like to sing, you can sing. But you don't have to sing it. You still, that's the skill you're trying to teach. When it feels like things are starting to careen, going a little too fast, what my mother used to always say, this is going to end in tears. As parents, you've seen that. You know that moment. This is going to end in tears. That's when you stop and feel your breathing. Does that answer your question? Okay, great. Yes? Um, I have a question. I guess it's kind of specific. When you were doing the slowly, 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 the slow yeah. book, so I, I like working with different paces with kids, too, but then I have an idea that 
Yeah. Well, the great thing about slowly, slowly, like the sloth, is that you can keep going. So if they're moving slowly, you can keep going, and then they can either continue or not going slowly. I know what you mean as far as the slow motion piece, because having them move in slow motion, you do run into that. Uh, and it's really just a, a matter of kind of kindly and gently trying to say, oh, I really see how slowly you're moving. That's, I really see that, and now we're going to do this. So it's a way of acknowledging their effort and then moving on because we have to move on. But I, I hear what you're saying. That's, it happens. Anybody have another question? I think we have some questions up here. I, I work in most schools. Mm-hmm. But I was doing a classroom lesson and I saw on YouTube uh, a quick clip from Muscle Branding at the Top of Bench Foundation mm-hmm. that showed that I'm um, going to be education for the kids in the school. Uh-huh. And I could see when I put it to the kids' face, it caught their attention and it's not inside. Do you know anything else like that? Because with middle school, it was getting them to understand why I'm going to There's some pretty great South Park. Um, you know, they're not, they're not South Park the same characters, but they're by the creators of South Park, and they're animations that, uh, of Alan Watts' podcasts, and they're really great for middle school's team. Kung Fu Panda Part 1 has a great clip about how the present moment is so precious, that kind of thing. But working with middle schoolers absent, you know, the audiovisual stuff, I can tell you where I always start. I always start with mindfulness, mindful breathing, lying down. If you have enough room where you're working to allow the older kids to start lying down, it's fantastic because the resistance that you might get with kids sitting up isn't there lying down because those kids are very happy to lie down and they might even be going to sleep. And my feeling is if they're going to sleep, they probably need to sleep and that's just fine. And then other kids start to really develop a sensory, you know, they have a sensory experience of feeling the breath move and feeling their body relax. And when that starts happening, the minute you start having the kids feel better because of the mindfulness, and then integrating it outside of the classroom, and then reporting back on how they integrated it. That's when you start to get buy-in. So it's, it's a matter of taking patience, having some patience around it. It's also, there's, there's a Native American tradition called council, and there's a great group facilitation program called the council program from the Ojai Foundation. And the, they have taken the idea that there is wisdom in the circle, and if the facilitator can just step back enough and keep the, it a safe circle, the children will have the wisdom themselves. And I have found that to be true. I, there's just no going around it. If you have kids who go out and use mindfulness and are given the opportunity to come back and share that they do, buy-in goes up like that. They just believe it more from each other than they do from us. So the, my, with the older kids, if you start lying down, I also use a lot of music with older kids, and I use it, 
There are different ways in classical training that are considered basically training wheels for meditation. One is counting breaths, which is also very useful for kids. Uh, not the real little ones, but for the older elementary on up. Uh, and I think of music as one of those bits of, cla of training wheels for meditation. So what I'll do is I'll bring my iPod, and my iPod has... Um, um, my son and my husband have programmed my, my iPod. So I can be pretty sure that if I bring it in and I give it to a teenager, that they'll find something on it that they're familiar with and that they like. And so I'll let the kids choose the music. I'll put it in a little small deck I carry with me. I play the music. I don't want anyone to think we're meditating for music. We're not meditating to music. We're using that music as a method of the play piece, play, practice, share, and apply. They just relax, they listen to the music. It's a way of relaxing the mind. It's a way of just relaxing the mind and body before introspection. And it's the same thing we do with young kids as far as playing a game or singing a song. And the reason this play piece is so important, or listening to music or doing some sort of physical exercise, is have you guys ever gone to meditate when you were really upset? It's like you sit down, and how easy is it to just sit down and have your mind get very relaxed and peaceful and calm? It's really hard. But if you sit down to meditate after having had some fun or after listening to music or after gardening or doing something that's an activity that is more, you know, what's you know, popularly called right brain, then you're sitting down in a completely different headspace and it's easier then to settle into some sort of introspection. Same is true with kids. You play some music, they listen to it, you fade it out, and then you lead a guided uh, practice, lying down of breathing mindfully and really feeling the breath. And that's a great way to segue into it. One teenager said to me once, and I loved it, I thought it was just beautiful, she said, I don't know why anyone wouldn't like mindfulness class. I mean, if you don't like it, you can just sleep through it. <laughs> and I was just fine with that. Uh, yeah, back there. Yeah, yeah, it's true, and power struggles are really, it's, it's hard to notice you're about to get into a power struggle, so often parents and children don't realize they're in one until they're in it. And it goes back to the importance of the adult developing their own practice. Because as the, develop, as the adult develops more of his or her own mindfulness practice, what will happen is they will start sooner and sooner to be aware of what's coming up, 
they'll start noticing the sensory experiences that are happening inside them that are leading to feeling the power struggle. They'll start noticing the triggers, and then they'll develop more of a capacity to stop and feel your breathing. That interruption is that choice point. I think Joseph Goldstein calls it the about-to moment. There's a moment between the sensory experience or the thought or the emotion and the action. And if you can learn to identify that and interrupt it, that allows you to change the course of what's going to happen. So that's what we're asking kids to do. We're asking them to make wise choices in that choice point. But in order to do that, we need to develop our own practice first so we can do it ourselves. Because if we model that for them, they will pick it up and they will learn it more quickly by our example than by um, us telling them to do it but are not doing it. So that's, that's the thing about the power struggles. It's about really the adult is the responsible person recognizing through their own practice what's coming on and developing the capacity to interrupt before it happens, or not beat yourself up, but you're in the middle of a power struggle, it happens to everybody, so I notice I'm in the middle of it, okay, I'm now gonna step back and settle myself and then come back and try something else. Uh, So it happens to everybody and not to beat ourselves up when we're not perfect, but just to notice it and interrupt it, get some space, and then try again. It's the same thing Sharon was talking about this morning, the real The real ticket is the beginning again. And not beating yourself up for not being the perfect parent or grandparent or teenager, but noticing, okay, so I got a little bit off track, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to collect myself, and I'm going to begin again. Um, I'll take a couple more questions, and then uh, why not back there, and then we'll come up there. But there's two back there in the sun. Um, I was curious if you could elaborate a little bit on this. It's not working. Um, <laughs> I'll give you my example. Because I have a nine-year-old. Who, um, you have a nine-year-old. Nine-year-old. I don't think she's the most imaginative person, except when it comes to laying down at night. That's when she thinks about robbers and kidnappers, and, and she clearly, you know, reaches great heights. Um, and she, there's a lot of stories that she mentioned. Um, and with, I've introduced a breathing technique to her a while ago, and I counting numbers and a bunch of various methods, which I think would help her. And they used to, and I guess she perfected her imagination <laughs> better than the technique. So she said, but it's not working. And I say, come back to it, come back to it. It seems, it just, happens that the, the last person to speak is always her, and she always ends up saying, Mama, but it's not working. And she's on the verge of tears, and I'm starting to, I'm beyond that just about to. <laughs> so at some point, I just kind of say, leave the, I, I'm leaving you, are going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. And I'm leaving, not in a very positive note. <laughs> um, any tricks? Yeah, well, um, in, this happens at nighttime only? Maybe. When uh-huh. it's light out or when she's busy with doing other things, she's better able to redirect attention. Uh-huh. Well, I can give you a couple of tricks to try. And then, you know, as Sharon was talking earlier this morning, getting, I'm sure you 
already have it, getting a nice supportive community of other parents and people to talk to about it, because it's very common, and just talking to other people who have been through it or going through it is, is that kind of community is important for parents. But let's take a second. I want to teach you a practice I was going to teach you anyway. And I know we still have two questions. I will get back to you, but let's just interrupt. And it's similar, but the theory is that if your daughter is, she's nine and a half, seven and a half, what was it? She's nine. Nine. If she's nine years old, she's still, she's, she's still in the, the elementary school um, in range. She's one of the younger ones that we work with. And sometimes anything that requires the younger kids to kind of carry on in their own head the practice is a lot to ask of them. So if there's things that we can do to guide them through the practice, it's very useful. Um, and some sort of visualization uh, practice I would, tr I would try next with her. And later, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to talk about friendly wishes, which is the adaptation of loving kindness. But this is another practice I wanted to talk to you about. It's a butterfly practice body, for a body scan. So if you put on your mindful bodies for a second, I think it's probably easier to do than to talk about. And you could do this lying down if you like, but we're sitting here. And so remember, our bodies are going to be like mountains. They're nice and strong. They're not going to be blown over by the wind or the rain. Our breath is just going to come in and go out like the wind. Just coming and going like the wind. And our mind is going to be wide open like the sky. Let's start with just really feeling the movement of breath for a minute. Breathing in, breathing out. In, out. Breathing in, our bellies move up, full of air. Breathing out, they empty. Breathing in and breathing out. Now let's imagine that there's a butterfly. You have your own special butterfly. Everybody does. And just bring to mind what your butterfly looks like. What color is it? How big is it? What do the wings look like? What do his feet look like or her feet? Just imagine your butterfly. Now this butterfly has magic powers. And when the butterfly lands on your body, all of a sudden, that part of your body just relaxes. So let's just imagine the butterfly has landed on the top of your head. See if you can feel the top of your head. And there's warmth and relaxation all over the top of your head, moving down. And now that the top of your head is all relaxed, that warmth is going to move all the way down your back of your head to your neck. So just imagine that magic butterfly has sent warmth all 
all the way down to the back of your neck. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. Now that butterfly is going to just jump off the top of your head and fly down and land on your right shoulder. And when it lands on your right shoulder, the right shoulder relaxes and the warmth of that butterfly starts at the shoulder and moves down your right arm to your elbow, to your lower right arm, to your hand and your fingers. And it's not too hot and it's not too cold, it's just right. Now that butterfly is going to jump off your shoulder and land on your upper leg. And the warmth from that butterfly fills the upper leg so that your whole upper leg is nice and warm and relaxed and it's not too hot. It's not too cold, it's just right. The butterfly moves to your knee and your knee feels warm and relaxed. The butterfly moves to your lower leg and your lower leg feels warm and relaxed. And finally it lands on your right foot and your right foot feels relaxed and warm. Now the butterfly is going to fly over and land on your left foot. Your left foot relaxes, feels warm. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. And that warmth moves up your lower left leg to the knee and to the upper leg. Now that both legs are relaxed, your butterfly is going to hop off that foot and go up to the left shoulder. Going to relax your left shoulder and the warmth from that magic butterfly is going to go from the left shoulder through the upper arm and the lower arm and finally the hand. And it's not too hot, and it's not too cold, it's just right. Now your whole left side is warm and relaxed and that butterfly is going to hop back up and fly to the top of your head and just feel your whole body now warm and relaxed Not too hot, not too cold, but just right. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. So that type of visualization where you guide them through step by step is helpful when we're trying to settle a lot of thoughts and feelings so that it makes it easier to go to sleep. Does that make sense? Good. Okay. I think we had a couple more questions up here.
um, we do apply these different techniques to kids in a more at-risk environment. Kids that have been traumatized, like in a mental hospital or in a residential treatment program. Mm -hmm. Do the same techniques apply or not apply to them? They apply, but it's important that the person who is using them is well-trained in working in that population. Because we have some of the body scans are not skillful for people who have had trauma. So um, they, it, it really requires somebody who has a lot of training in working with that population, being able to use them skillfully. Uh, a lot of a good places to start are starting with awareness of sound, starting with awareness of things that are happening on the outside. But the theories work, and there's some really great um, success stories, but it really requires a lot of delicacy and a lot of care. And this idea of short time many times, a minute is fine. You know, we don't really want to ask these kids to sit, any kids actually, for five, seven minutes. But whether it's a trauma population or anyone, it's really important to keep in mind when working with kids that we never push them beyond where they're comfortable. So that's why as the facilitator, there's many things you need to be working with kids in the mindfulness area. I mean, there's these little drop-ins you can do is, are something that parents can do at home that people without a lot of mindfulness training can do. But if you're really looking to teach mindfulness to kids in a more formal way, you need significant mindfulness training, but you also need significant classroom or group facilitation experience. And if you're planning to work in a clinical setting, you need clinical experience. So one of the challenges is to try to find one person who has all of those things and to go in and work with kids. And what is often really useful is to go in as a team, to have somebody who's got a lot of mindfulness experience and somebody who's got clinical experience, or somebody who's got a lot of teaching experience and mindfulness experience, and they can co-learn with each other. My suggestion, though, is to really make sure that as you develop these teams, that everybody has a healthy respect for each other's area of expertise. Because ultimately, to really bring this out into the world in a very meaningful way, we need the help of child development experts, we need the help of uh, teachers or clinicians, and we need the help of people who really understand mindfulness in a deep way. So you bring those three skill sets together and a lot of mutual respect, and everybody kind of leaves their ego at the door, and it's amazing what can happen. But going back to whether it's a clinical setting or not, we have to be really, really aware of the child we're working with. And if we see anything that makes us feel like they're one of the children in the group or the child, his or herself, is uncomfortable, it's time to stop. It's time to just take a break and maybe do something different, talk about what happened. But we don't, we watch for signs that a child is squirming. We watch for signs that a child is having a really hard time closing their eyes. We watch for, you know, children will say, this is difficult for me. Often, we, if you see somebody who's having a hard time lying down, just ask them to sit up. Uh, simple things like that, suggest walking but really keeping a close eye on all the kids you're working with. And when somebody starts to look uncomfortable, 
you just go over and check it out and you see what's going on. And um, if they're really uncomfortable, the whole group can stop. It's, it's time to stop. And if there's ways to make them more comfortable by sitting up or moving, then we do that. But it really it takes a lot of care and a lot of close attention to the children in the group to make sure that we're sort of tailoring a program that works for everybody. Remembering a lot of kids just have a hard time sitting still. So asking them to sit still isn't going to be as helpful for them as teaching them practices where they deliberately move side to side and really just as with walking meditation, they really sense the sensation of movement. And in doing that, they're able to settle themselves. And some of the kids, they're, you know, they settle themselves by going at this pace and they find it calming. So we have to let them take the lead and what they find soothing, we then help construct something that works within the group. And it's very doable, but again, with a real healthy collaborative relationship. I was very lucky when I was working with teachers, uh, when I was really developing this work, um, I worked with great teachers and I really saw them as, you know, I was student teaching with them in a very real way. So they were my... They were my team members. If I had a question, I asked them. I, I asked for feedback, and it worked beautifully. And as a result, the program was able to develop in a way that it couldn't if, as a mindfulness person, I just went in and just did you know, the mindfulness without understanding the rest. So does that help? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, no, those are excellent questions. And I think there's a couple of things that I think are important, and you hit upon them. First, I think it's very important that this is an opt-in program if you're going into a school or, or any other setting, that teachers opt in. Uh, if we ask teachers, if we impose this on people, uh, the results tend not to be so good, and the likelihood of them developing their own practice to support this is very small. What I've seen far more successful is you have the teachers who are interested opt into the program. They start working with it. Within their classrooms, they start seeing some success. The other teachers who were resistant see, okay, this isn't some kind of crazy new age thing from California. And they start seeing how it can work. And then they start buying in. So even if you only have two or three teachers at first who are opting in, that's fantastic. They can try to work within the culture of the school, make something work, and they'll be the model 
for the rest of the school. So I think opting in is really important. I think the other point you made is really important, is figuring out how to integrate mindfulness into what teachers or clinicians or parents are already doing. Everybody's exhausted, everybody's stressed out. We don't want mindfulness to be another stressful thing. We also don't want it to be a fad. We don't want it to be another one of these educational fads where the schools spend a lot of money on this thing, they bring it in, everybody get manuals, they go in the garbage can, and they move on to the next thing next year. So in order to ensure that this is not a fad but a trend, we need to find ways to integrate mindfulness into what people are already doing. And the answer for that, I believe, are the drop-in activities. Small activities that last two or three minutes at a time that teachers can drop into what they're already doing. So I think that's basically the answer. You're the best thing. Yes? I have a question. <laughs> um, hearing some of these questions, you know, I think about programs that I know of and you know of, like the Lineage Project mm -hmm. here in New York, which working with at-risk youth, or I forget the name of the organization in California that was an Omega one where they're together. Yeah, um, the Mind-Body Awareness Project. Mind-Body Awareness Project, and hearing the last question I thought about the Garrison Program, mm -hmm. CARE, their program for teachers learning mindfulness to bring into the classroom, and yeah. um, also Margaret. Yes. Um, that's not care. That's I'll, not care. I'll think of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so where does one go? Is there yeah. a resource oh, there center? Are, is there a site? Like yeah. There's a number of different programs that you can do. There's trainings. A lot of people are having trainings now. So it really depends on what your demographic is, what it is you're looking for. But there's different programs for teachers that teach basic mindfulness. MBSR programs teach basic mindfulness. And the Center for Mindfulness at UMass is also developing programs for teachers. The Garrison Institute has a program for teachers called CARE. I think Margaret Cullen is working in Denver. I, I, she lives in Northern California, but I think the program's in Denver. It's with the Smart in Schools. It's with the Impact Foundation. It's called Smart in Schools. And so these are all different people who have different programs. As far as the actual kids stuff, there's the Han Foundation, the TM Foundation, David Lynch's Foundation, uh, Inner Kids. We haven't got a curriculum yet, but you can get some of these things in the book. There's Mindful Schools. Um, and I think for prisons, and that, I think it's Mind Body Awareness and Lineage. Uh, so if I was sitting in my computer and I didn't happen to be on Twitter, Um, you know, that's a good question. Uh, there, you know, there is an online community that my daughter started called Mindfulness Together. It's got about 4,000 members from all over the world. You can join it. It's like a Facebook for adults, and you can post a question. You'll get a, a, a member will usually answer. I'm trying to think. Um, you know, you make a good point. I don't think there is one site that actually has all the different programs, and there should be. I think Center for Healthy Minds, you know, Richie Davidson's lab, I think he does have a resource page that might have some of them. But, um, you know, it's something that, you know, we should put together. Uh, the clinicians. The clinicians want 
If clinicians want training, um, um, I don't know. There are, there are some larger programs happening. UC San Diego is having a program in February. It's like a two-day conference. Uh, and that, that's actually a good one. Pamela Siegel's coming uh, from Courage for Renewal. Amishi Jha will be there. I will be there. Rick, Rich, Rick Hansen will be there. That's a good one. Uh, it's in San Diego in February. I know Daniel Reihausen? Rex Huffman is starting a, a mindfulness institute for people training, and I know that the, the logistics of that are just starting to happen. I don't know. I'm on the staff of that, too, but I don't know what the dates are. Um, so there are different opportunities out there for training. I guess if you just... Um, Oh, yeah, Richard Brady's group, M-I-E-N, MEAN, Mindfulness and Education. Uh, Amy Saltzman is having a conference this weekend out in Northern California. She has a group called Association for Mindfulness and Education. Um, so those are some resources right there. And then you can, um, Garrison Institute in November is doing a two-day uh, program that will also be good. Uh, it's, a, it's in Garrison, it's in Put, Putnam County? I think it's Putnam County? It's about an hour and 20 minutes from here on the train. <laughs> it's, a, it's about an hour and 20 minutes from the train, and it's another, I'll be there too, and it's another group of people coming together, including scientists and child development people and mindfulness people. So you'll see a lot there. Um, okay, I'm just going to take these last two questions because I want some time to practice friendly wishes and uh, for you guys to be able to grape, break up into smaller groups. Yes? So you talked a lot about um, education and mindfulness in the classroom setting. Um, can you talk a little bit about techniques for parents and students to and especially for uh, children who are a little older mm -hmm. where uh, it's not neutral? Yeah, that's, that's a really wonderful question. And what I would say is that in the first instance, whether you're a clinician or a parent or a teacher, this, the starting place is always the same, which is your own practice. And I know it sounds like a broken record, but it really, we really need to, and I know you have a practice, but we really need to emphasize that to teach this stuff, you got to live this stuff. And so the first place is always with your own practice. The next place is always starting with what we call drop-in activities. Not trying to do a big, large thing, but a drop-in activity. And one of the things that's very useful with teenagers and with um, pre-teenagers is really starting, even before starting with the mindfulness piece, starting to weave into your conversations the key concepts of mindfulness. Things like everything changes. Things like don't, you know, these are thoughts, you know, they, these are feelings. They will come and they will go. Uh, really in your conversations with your kids to be able to take these key concepts, even things as simple as Beginner's Mind and that book on Zoom about how, you know, things are not always what they appear to be. And because there is so much resistance with kids at the beginning as they get older, 
Uh, sometimes it's better we're able to get to them through, through these concepts and then they start to make sense with them. So really starting to weave in together the concepts. Putting that aside, there are a lot of good outside classes for teenagers and often it's a good idea to try to have, take a teenager to a class instead of try to teach it to them yourself because there'll be less resistance to somebody else than to a mother or a father. I know I've got an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old now. Um, so those are the sorts of things. But are you, are you facing absolute resistance or is there a little bit of movement there with your kids? That's how they feel when, yeah. Yeah. Well, we already know this model. Yeah. Well, this is what I'm wondering because I've seen that too and I identify with it because you can only imagine what my kids say about me uh, when it comes to this. Uh, There goes mom again. But what I would encourage you to do is spend a little bit of time mindfully witnessing them, which means really try to observe your children, your teenage children, in the same way you observe your own mind while meditating. So really try to say, okay, right now, I'm not going to be analyzing. When these thoughts come up, I'm just going to notice them. There's plenty of time to analyze it later. But right now, I'm just going to notice them, not engage in them, and then go back to just really trying to watch. And I don't mean like watching with a notepad so that they know it, but just sitting back, seeing what thoughts and feelings come up in you, and just watching. I wouldn't be at all surprised since they are the children of a long-term meditator, which is the sense I get, if you start seeing in their behavior things that are related to mindfulness, that are consistent with the key concepts through which you live your life, when you start identifying those, you encourage them. And you don't use the word mindfulness. Because that's, that is often the trigger, that's often pushed back. But when you see your son or your daughter actually stop, consider and not be reactive. You can support that without mentioning that it is a mindful behavior. And you start seeing the activity that's consistent with what a mindfulness practice develops and support it. And you start to see how this is already happening in their lives and integrate it. The reason I feel so strongly about that is my son is 18 and um, he was absolutely convinced that he didn't have anything to do with mindfulness. And when the book came out, people at school or places would say, do you, you know, did your mom ever do mindfulness with you? And he said, no, we didn't. And then over time, somehow or other people would be saying, did you do this? Did you do that? Did your other thing? And eventually he came home and he said, I had no idea that stuff was mindfulness, which is why I really believe in stealth mindfulness. (laughs) And I really mean it. We don't say okay, we're going to do mindfulness. What we do is we do mindful, you know, we, we develop, we practice, we encourage, we do, we model this without naming it so that then they can pick it up more by example or they start to feel how it's helping. But 
I think the last thought I would have about that for um, is that if you could um, if you have some flexibility in there you can encourage there's a lot of good CDs Sharon has them John Kabat-Zinn there's people who have good CDs there's places like Noah Levine in his group largely a young group Dharma punks uh, really starting to bring awareness that it's not entirely kind of a uh, older generation type of thing and bring awareness that there's a lot of younger people who are doing it and those kind of things start to help with buy-in but sometimes the changes with mindfulness start to happen. They're very quite small, they're quite subtle, and you don't really notice it at the time, but they show up later. Yeah. Okay, so let's, uh, let's take a second and stretch a little bit.
that energy. Yeah, have you ever dealt with kids like that? Barbara, B-A-R, B-A-R.
Thank you, everybody. So I want to back up a little bit, and I want to go back to what happens, what's the first thing we do if we want to practice mindfulness with kids? How do we describe it to them? And remember at the beginning, I was talking to you about respect for self, respect for others, respect for the planet. In the same way, we talk to mindfulness, talk to kids about paying attention, first starting with yourself. Then we pay attention to other people. Then we pay attention to the world around us. Same sequence tracks for friendly wishes or for loving kindness. We first start sending love or kindness to ourselves, then to other people, then to the world around us. So one of the things that I think is really important to reinforce here is that when uh, we are practicing and when we're teaching mindfulness, very often when we're as parents, we really want particular skills that will solve particular problems. And that approach tends not to work as well as thinking, okay, I would like to expose my child to mindfulness and really approach it with the child as if this is something that I found very useful in my life and I'd like you to give it a try, as opposed to this is something I think is going to help you or or fix what I think needs to be fixed. Um, the other thing I see a lot of as I travel around is as mindfulness becomes more and more popular, what's beginning to happen is that these practices are being taught willy-nilly, and that they're being taught out of sequence and out of order and just randomly. And I don't think this is harming anybody. I don't think it will harm any children. And the worst thing that happens is the kids are having fun playing with the parents or with the teachers, and there's a lot of benefit to that. But there is one of the reasons that mindfulness programs uh, track classical adult training is because there is a sequence of training in the classical training that has been around for a couple thousand years and in the last 30 years has been really well researched with adults. So there's every reason to believe, even though the research is very new with children, that that research will also be positive with kids. So I really encourage you, whether it's as a teacher, a clinician, or as a parent, that wall is to really build your own awareness of why we started here. Why is it you want to practice mindfulness with children? And then know that it's not so different from math. This is something I've started saying to a lot of teachers I'm working with. If you have a question about whether it's appropriate to teach mindfulness in this way with this amount of experience, just substitute the word math for mindfulness and you'll probably get the answer. Because just as we expect math teachers to have had training in math and to be able to do math, we ex it's, uh, it's important that mindfulness teachers have training in mindfulness and can do mindfulness. So for example, if you're wondering if you've got enough experience yet to teach mindfulness, just substitute the word math. If I had as much experience in math that I do in mindfulness, would I have enough experience to teach it? What you might come up with is, yeah, I can teach first grade math, but I really can't teach calculus. And that's a good thing to know. So, okay, so maybe simple breath awareness for young children would be a good place to start. Although with the young children, you also need classroom management. Uh, similarly, if you're, ask, if you're wondering about mindfulness and you're wondering 
Um, another way to use the math analogy is you're not going to teach long division before teaching addition and subtraction. So we see a lot of people jumping ahead to advanced emotional regulation practices before they teach attention. And as Sharon said this morning, you really the foundation for all of these practices is some sort of attention. So in the same way, if you're looking at a program and you're seeing, okay, well, we Three, people really are drawn to the emotional regulation piece because they so desperately want to help. And so it's not out of any, uh, it's all out of a good motivation, but in their desire to help, people often jump to mindfulness as emotional regulation. How can we help them use it without starting with a basis and attention? So uh, I really encourage you to think about this as you would think about learning to teach math and think about learning the program and the sequence and the pedagogy and all of that, just as you would approach teaching math. And that way, um, I think the answers will, will appear and it'll just make an awful lot more sense. Does it make sense? The question was, uh, can you give me an overview, basically, of what of some of those first steps. I think one thing that's really important is that we know that the overall definition of mindfulness as being applied in a secular um, secular adaptation is not just attention, it's also kindness. So it's paying attention with kindness. And what often happens is that the focus is on the attention or the focus is on a use to calm down when upset without really bringing in the framework of kindness and compassion for self and others. So one is you really need both pieces, the, the mindfulness piece and the kindness piece. Knowing that um, a good description of this is that my, snipers have great mindfulness, right? You know, you're a sniper, you've got great attention, but they're not very kind. So we want to raise our kids to have both, the, both the attention and the kindness. Generally speaking, how the sequence goes and is general is that, you know, at the beginning there's awareness of the body and we start with things like breath awareness and awareness of sound and it extends to sensory awareness, which includes awareness not just of what you see, hear, taste, touch and smell, but also of where your body is in space, which is the proprioceptive system. When you do slowly, 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 like the sloth, and you know where your hand is in space without looking at it, that's your proprioceptive system at work. Also, your vestibular system is another sensory system balance. So we start with awareness of body, then we move to awareness of the mind, which is thoughts, emotions, and habits of the mind. Do I have some, some tendencies of the way I look and think at things? Is, my, do I, is there a lens like the green water here that I tend to see through? Not bad, not good that you have a lens. It's about bringing it into awareness. When you bring these things into awareness, your relationship to them tends to change. So it's awareness of inner experience, which starts with the body and then goes to the mind, and the body being the breath and sensory experience, and the mind being thoughts and emotions. So... Mindfulness is paying attention with kindness, first to me, then we move to other people, and the whole category of other people, and we start to pay attention to other people, and 
Uh, they're the outwardly manifestations of what's happening in their bodies and minds. And then to the world around us where we really start learning about interconnection and how things are connected. So that's the basic sequence. It's paying attention to me, to other people, and to the world around us with kindness. It's attention and kindness together. Uh, one way to just think of it is awareness of inner experience, awareness of outer experience, and awareness of both together without blending the two, which is important with kids because kids very often uh, kind of blend their inner and outer experience together. One great game in a classroom experience to help kids understand that everybody doesn't always feel the same way about everything is thumbs up, thumbs down, and thumbs sideways. Do you want to play it? So I'm going to ask you, is it easy or hard to sit still right now? And on the count of three, and it's important we do it on the count of three, <laughs> there's my answer. On the count of three, if it's easy to sit still, you're going to do a thumbs up. If it's hard to sit still, you're going to do a thumbs down. And if it's in between, a thumb sideways. So if it's easy, you're going to do what? If it's hard, you're going to do what? And if it's in between? Okay, one, two, three, go. Now everybody keep your hands in the air and look around the room. First lesson in mindfulness, not everybody feels the same way that you do, which is really, really important for kids. So I am seeing that we are kind of all over the place on whether it's easy or hard to sit still. So I think uh, this is a good time to try to break up into small groups. Now, what I would encourage you to do is use this time for one of two things. One is you could use the time to just connect with each other and see ways that you can reconnect and stay connected beyond today to help build this community. Or you can use the time to try to practice some basic breath awareness practices or mindful breathing practices uh, that we learned today, remembering going through the posture or the zipping up or uh, listening to a sound or just feeling your breathing, or lying down. So you can do a combination of both. But I think having some time to break out by community might be a great thing to do right now. How does that sound to people? Okay, so we've got some thumbs ups. Okay, whoops, yes. I think someone is trying to do that. Is that something, a listserv or some way to...
got like over 100 people here, and everybody starts responding to reply all, okay. I'd ask not to do that. That would be my so, simple If you make a Facebook group and title it something that we know we can look for, all you Yeah, I can send one email. email. You, you don't even have to send an email. We could, I mean, you could, but well, you know. Well, just to let people know where the group is yeah. right? on Facebook. Okay. Yeah, no, just, okay. I'll, I'll try that. I don't know. We're working this out as we speak. Somebody has a hand up in the back. That sounds good. Okay. Great. And Rhonda is going to help organize by geographic area. It's 4 o'clock, so let's try to take, what do you think, about 20 minutes? Does that sound right? 20 minutes? So let's take 20 minutes in your groups, and if we can be back here at 4.20, that would be fantastic. Whoops.
Hi, everybody. I want to keep on time. I can tell everybody's very engaged. But why don't you stay in your groups, and let's just keep on time. But what I'd like to do is if everybody from their group, if, we can, if you can each choose one person to just popcorn up when you get a chance. And is there a mic around? Oh, here's a mic. Um, and um, Gina, do you mind? And uh, just report back in just a couple of sentences what happened in your group so that everybody in the whole group kind of gets a sense of what you're up to. Yes. Because it's 420. I'm just trying to keep on time. And where are you from?
some of the neuroscience and some of the physical therapy and, and the meditation. I tried to really look for the waves in with kids. We mm-hmm. talked a lot about the drop-in waves and things like that. Great. Thank you. <laughs> we were not in Pennsylvania, so we were a foursome of Rhode Island, Boston, uh, Delmar, New York, and uh, my non-specific location. And we <laughs> broke off into individual conversations where we each learned a little bit about the other. And then um, I'm going to actually give it to each person in this group to share what they thought, because it was so splendid. Here you go. And where were you guys from? That's great. Yeah, there are some people who are mindful of West Coast. <laughs> That's great. Well, did every, every group have a chance to report back? All right, I want to take a couple of minutes to, do, to talk about
kindness in Meta uh, with young children, and then Sharon's going to close. And I also wanted to just say in this subject of the kindness and the meta practice or the friendly wishes practices for children is that in the mindfulness in children's work, a lot of attention is paid to attention. Oh, sure, sure. Go back to wherever you're comfortable and we'll wait a second. <laughs> yes. Is this still to come? Right well, I, I, we can do that right now. <laughs> oh, the bobblehead. And what about this? Oh, it's a... Okay, so... Oh, wow. All right, so this, you breathe. Oh. <laughs> and this, has your head ever felt like that? Ever feel like this? If it is, you just... <laughs> Okay, so we're going to have a quick show of toys. Sharon came up and saw these. He <laughs> was like, okay, anybody's head ever feel like this? All you need to do is stop and feel your breathing. And if you keep this still and you free feel your breathing, the bobble head will stop. Pretty cool, huh? For the younger kids, there's a lot of different breath awareness things you can do at the same time, you would be do, doing counting breaths with older kids, but this is with um, hand motions. So, for example, you can breathe in. There you go, in down. And then you can pass it around the circle. Like, you could do this at the dinner table, and everybody could do this. You empower everyone to do it. So I would start, and then the person on my right would go, and so other people can lead. You can do that like this, or with this fancy Hoberman globe. Win Kinder from Wellness Works turned me on to this. And again, on the out, on the in breath, you breathe. It gets big. On the out breath, gets small. Oh, sorry. In breath, it gets big, and out breath, it gets small. You all breathe together. You can take two of them, and they can be in time with each other, and two children can do it. Really works with breath awareness and attunement to somebody else. A Hoberman globe, H-O-B-E-R-M-A-N, Winkinder taught me about that. Uh, so those are pretty... <laughs> so Sharon's going to be feeling her breathing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Loving kindness. Loving kindness. I think we talk a lot about attention with kids, and that's good. And the research is primarily about attention, and we're learning about how mindfulness practice can build attention. And especially with our kids who have regulation problems in the emotional area or in the attentional area, uh, we're really excited and delighted that some mindfulness practice may help build things like executive functioning. But we do know that that's going to take a while. And one of the real great magics of mindfulness is they help the parent, they help the teacher, and they help the child be able to see the whole child, all of the child all at once. And so they can see, very often we end up focusing on, just as Sharon was talking about in our own minds this morning, we can focus on 
the, the negative thing that happened, or we can focus on the comment we wished we didn't make, or we can focus on the person who doesn't like us, as opposed to focusing on the good during the day. And in the same way, we tend to focus on the child's deficit because we want to help, and we often miss out on the gifts. So one of the great, great, great benefits of mindfulness is that it allows us as parents to be able to notice something when it's emotionally charged and then to be able to breathe through it, recognize the charge, and then be able to broaden our awareness to know, okay, this is not so, this needs a little bit of work over here. But at the same time, there are these gifts. And as we start to better understand that, then we start to better understand why the children might be having trouble lying still why the child might be resistant in putting, pushing back. And we start to, again, insert the word math when we would otherwise think mindfulness. So if we saw a child struggling with math, would we be angry with them? No, we'd help them. They're struggling with math. If we see a child having a hard time attending or sitting still, same thing. We, same as with math. It's a, they're having a hard time with it. We support them. So that's where the loving-kindness practices really help as far as softening all of this around our, our, uh, our attention practices because loving-kindness does still build attention, but just broadening our perspective a little bit. So the only thing that is different about the loving-kindness practice with the very young children than what Sharon was teaching this morning is we tend to bring to mind an image as opposed to the words because the kids are better able to understand the pictures. So a child, we would ask a child to first feel as if they are in a safe place, to recall a place where they were happy and had a lot of fun. It can be their backyard, it can be the beach, it can be their parents' bed, it can be their own bed. And so they rest in that safe place and they just picture themselves as being really, really happy, as having lots and lots of fun and ease and at peace. And then they extend it to other people, piece by piece by piece, to people they know, to people they don't know but they're neutral about, like the President of the United States, for example, or the person at the grocery store, and then to the whole planet. Can you imagine a whole planet where everybody's happy? The only piece that's a little different with kids is we're very, very careful about extending loving kindness to people who classically would be called our enemies because we don't want to be encouraging children to be extending love to people who aren't treating them well. So I've been playing, I was very nervous about this for a while and I was getting encouraged by people I respected to try to work with it. And what I have found to be really useful in sibling conflicts is the notion of sending love or imagining somebody you love who is bugging you now being really, really happy. So for instance, we always, with friendly wishes, always acknowledge the feeling this person's bugging you. Sometimes the people we love the most bug us the most. But let's see if we can just for a second put that aside and imagine that person, a picture of that person being really, really happy, feeling safe, and at peace, healthy, and at ease. So that's how we work with the loving kindness with children. I'm watching the time, so I think it's good to close.
Does that make sense to everybody? Because I don't want to keep people late and with the elevators might be, be slow. Well, one elevator or another will take us down. Stairs are still working. So I will be here for a little while after your questions, and we can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, so when I went to this high school to teach here um, and I got kind of put on the spot because they wanted me to do heartfulness meditation or friendly wishes um, and I sort of quickly tried to juggle how I would ordinarily do it and make it somehow applicable for two minutes. So. Uh, instead of starting with oneself as one classically does in the tradition, I started with somebody that you uh, really like, you admire, maybe you've never met them but you admire them, someone who's kind of like a hero or heroine for you, something like that. And then did ourselves afterwards and then I think I did actually uh, like somebody that you like but are kind of mad at right now, something like that. And then I just went on to all beings, you know, like the whole planet, everybody, all animals, all people. And So then again we went around and uh, people said how they felt and, and a bunch of kids said that that last part, they didn't like that last part, it was kind of abstract, you know, just like the whole planet, it was, it was too abstract. And then this one little girl, even though it was high school, she said, of course it could be a reflection of my age, she seemed very young to me. <laughs> and uh, she said, I've done that everybody thing already. You know, we did that in gym class, because gym class is yoga. And, and they do some loving kindness meditation at the end, or heartfulness meditation at the end of yoga. But I love that, I've done that everybody thing already. And I thought, world has changed. <laughs> And it is a changing world, and, and everybody is a part of it. Clearly, this is all pioneering. This is a lot of experimentation. This is exploration. And, um, you know, together, we will find best practices and, and validation and uh, kind of the range of experimentation. So it's a very creative and wonderful time. So it's been great. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you, Ambika, for And also, you know, there's several people here who really helped us tremendously get the word out. I do want to say uh, that it was, you know, a fantastic turnout. And this is something that um, New York Insight has not, in the past, um, been able to generate for a family program. You know, so I think that's also a sign not only of the great work many of you put in to getting the word out, but of the changing times, you know, and, and where we're at. And so I'm hoping that uh, New York Insight, which so graciously hosted us and, you know, had volunteers and, and people here to uh, take care of everything, even when the elevator broke down. Um, 
you know, we'll be able to also carry some of this forward and, and be a, a recipient of the, the great energy of, of this day. So, uh, you know, classically we close. I don't know how you do it. Do you want to do it? Yeah, I mean, often, you know, we close uh, retreats, days, even an individual sitting session, even a session of practice with this idea of sharing merit. So I'll describe it in adult terms, and then Susan can do it in, in kid terms. So uh, merit is one of those words that I think has a sort of unfortunate translation. It is the translation for this word from Sanskrit or, or Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text. Uh, what it really means is it's this thought that if we turn our minds toward the good, if we have a sense of possibility or we're kind or we're restrained, you know, it would be awfully easy to tell a lie, but we don't. Something like that, that that actually generates a kind of energy. There's a power in that. And so at the end of a session, at the end of a retreat, something like that, the idea isn't that you kind of go home and, you know, count your merit points or something and think, wow, I did great. What a triumphant day. But we dedicate the positive energy, the positive force to those who've helped us. You know, everybody helped us be here in some way today, either by taking care of things at home or, you know, long ago they gave us a book or something like that. So those who've helped us, those we know who are hurting, um, and finally all beings everywhere so that the inner work we do is always connected to this larger vision of, of all beings everywhere and, and the uh, positive energy we generate is really dedicated to the welfare and the happiness of all. So now we're going to hear how it's done. Secular context with kids, we call it wishes to the world. Now, you guys know what popcorn is, right? It just means that you kind of pop up. We're going to imagine that we're all standing in a big circle around the room. We probably could do that, but I think we'll just pretend it today. And let's all squat down and pretend we're holding a ball. It's an imaginary ball. Remember, we're in a circle, so it makes more sense. We're all holding the same ball. And what we're all going to do is we're just going to toss our wishes for the world in it by popcorn. And so, for example, my wishes for the world is that all children everywhere can have an opportunity to experience mindfulness. And then if you guys can just, uh, when you feel moved, just... Uh, uh, volunteer a wish and the ball's going to get heavier and heavier and after everybody's put their wishes in on the count of three we're going to one, two, three we're going to lift the wishes up it's going to go into the sky and it's going to go around the world scattering wishes all over the world okay so here we go who wants to put their wishes in the world in the ball that all children experience the feeling of being lovable and there you go Okay, the ball's getting heavier. I can feel it. Can you? It's getting heavier. Anybody else? All children are happy. Happiness. All children feel safe. Safety. Sleepy, sleep. <laughs> sleep. This ball's getting bigger. You can see the ball's getting bigger. That all children laugh. Laugh. Laughter. They feel good about themselves. Everyone has people to trust. All parents and Parents and educators feel at peace with children. Children are 
that all children are safe, that they remain curious, that they have food, that they keep their passions, that they're not alone. That all children and adults are aware of their natural state of grace. Have healthy, happy play. And we remember, hmm? and we remember that we're all children still. That we remember we're all still children still. Is there one of them? That as teachers, we continue to support ourselves so we have the strength and energy to give them the love and hope they need. And parents, too. And therapists. <laughs> that adults remain curious enough to look beyond the behavior of children. That adults remain curious enough to look beyond the behavior of children. That all wounds heal. All right, guys. And the baby said something to you. Okay, so everybody ready with their ball? On the count of three. One, two, three. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.